night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Welcome to the show. I didn't hear anything when I started. Very, very strange, but it sounds okay now. Uh, welcome, everybody. Good to have you along with us. We've got a very, very interesting story tonight to talk about. Our guest, Ma- uh, Martin Sawa, will be talking about his book. And if I can grab it here, I can show it to you if you're watching the stream. It's called The Other Side of Success. And part of this journey is a very, very spiritual one. And it's one of uh, great discovery for Martin. And I'm I'm excited to, um, and honored actually, to have him here to, to share it with us. So looking forward to that. Before we bring him on, though, I want to remind you to do all the things you need to do, which is subscribe to the channels if you're not already subscribed. YouTube, Twitch, wherever you happen to be watching or both. Uh, look for the podcast version of the show as well. Very easy to find in any podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify. I think we're on iHeartRadio. All the main, you know, podcast places find it. It's called Beyond uh, Reality Paranormal on the podcast platforms. Also, uh, be sure to find us on Facebook and follow the pages there as well. I think that's all the housekeeping we have to do. Good to see everybody in the chat. Thank you for joining us. I always appreciate you being there and uh, supporting the program. So thank you very much. So we'll take a quick break. When we come back, we will bring our guest in. Again, tonight we'll be talking with Martin Sawa about his book. It's called The Other Side of Success. And you're going to be quite surprised. It's it's quite a journey, quite a process, and quite a story. So uh, buckle up, get ready. It's going to be a great night. It's Beyond Reality, and we'll be right back. Hey, it's JV here. You know I've asked for your support in the past, and I'm going to do it again because it's really, really important. And there are a couple of ways you can support the show, and it's so inexpensive. Now, you can go to Patreon, and you can become a Patreon supporter, and we really, really encourage that. But there's also another way. If you look at the description of the podcast, if you're a podcast listener, and you scroll down to the bottom, there's a way to support the show directly through the podcast app. And it's only 99 cents a month. It's less than a buck. You probably have that change in your couch right now. That dollar a month less than a dollar goes a long way in helping us produce this program provide great interviews for you during the course of the week i thank you in advance because the support is so important to the program when you need mealtime inspiration it's worth shopping kroger where you'll find over thirty thousand mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie and no matter what tasty choice you make you'll enjoy our everyday low prices plus extra ways to save like digital coupons worth over six hundred dollars each week you can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points more savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping kroger worth it every time kroger fresh for everyone fuel restrictions apply Again, thank you for joining us tonight. I'm very, very excited about our guest tonight. We're going to be talking to Martin Sawa. He is an author. He also is a paranormal medium believer, and you will understand why as the story progresses. He's the author of a book called The Other Side of Success. It's actually his memoirs, and it's a very interesting journey. Martin, welcome to Beyond Reality. It's really an honor to have you with us tonight. Well, thank you, JV. It's uh, really great to be here. You know, your story is a complex one. Um, you, it's, it's also very, uh, diverse, very varied. Uh, you tell it beautifully in the book, the other side of success. We're going to talk a lot about, um, a tragic part of this story, your story, but it's also a very redeeming part of your story. But before we get into that stuff, why did you decide to write a memoir to begin with? I had, uh, dropped out of, uh, the commercial real estate business, which, uh, was my, primary occupation as an entrepreneur uh, for most of my adult life and uh, uh, just decided to take some time off and do some things I had wanted to do and had started writing, wrote some uh, screenplays, some essays, and then uh, a developmental editor I was working with uh, uh, said, why don't you write a memoir? And I thought it was kind of narcissistic and, you know, didn't want to do a vanity project. But <laughs> the, the more I thought about it, uh, the characters that I knew and the experiences I had were often more interesting than what I could conjure up in a fictional world. So I decided to go ahead, and it took me a few years. And uh, But I'm in retrospect, I'm glad I didn't. You, uh, you, you, you know, the story is, is, as I said in the beginning, quite varied, quite 
complex, quite interesting too, because you've had ups and downs throughout your life. As I said, we're going to get into the uh, part of your life that was rather tragic, but it also led you to some redemption. But before that, how would you describe your your life as as an entrepreneur? Were you do you think you were happy? Were you obsessed with you know making you know the next sale? A lot of entrepreneurs, including myself, have felt that before. How do, how would you describe your your life before you took a step back to look at it? My my journey was maybe a little different than uh, most people. Uh, I grew up in a little town in Wisconsin. My parents immigrated from the Ukraine after World War II and arrived with two suitcases and my older sister. So I always had to kind of scrap to, you know, compete. And then I moved out to California after college and uh, worked as a city planner and hated my job. And one day I uh, just quit. And uh, I didn't know what I was going to do, uh, but I knew I was never going to go back to that life and I was going to work for myself. So I got into commercial real estate yeah, first as a broker, then an operator, and I invented myself one last time as a developer. And this was in uh, San Francisco and Oakland and uh, Los Angeles, selling, you know, high-rise office buildings, shopping malls, uh, things like that. So it was an interesting life, <laughs> and, uh, but it's very competitive. And yeah. when you work for yourself, Every year, the counter is reset to zero. And if you work half as hard, you don't make half as much. You make nothing. So it consumed a lot of my time and attention. Uh, but then my personal life got more complicated and interesting. And it was um, uh, a journey of its own. Yeah, I want to talk about that journey. Uh, you know, one of the things that you put in the description of yourself is that you're now a paranormal medium believer. Uh, we're going to talk about the story that made you a paranormal medium believer, but first tell us who Anita was, because Anita, obviously, a very important part of the story. Anita was my second wife. Uh, we married, well, I met her in 1991, and at that time I was about 40 years old. And prior to meeting her, had no real contact in any regard with the world of the paranormal. And uh, after we met and later married, I discovered she had what I would call powers, and we began to experience uh, anomalous and synchronistic events. And uh, that opened my eyes to this other world. And then later, uh, we met a psychic, and that ratcheted up a notch. Yeah, before we get into that part of the story, tell us about what you feel, especially now in retrospect, what Anita's gifts were. What type of sensitivities and spiritual gifts would you say Anita had? I, I can just give you examples because I, I haven't like tried to classify them. But um, uh, when she was, which she later told me after I observed her. Uh, she told me that in high school she had been uh, bullied by a girl and then one day told her that she had uh, tuberculosis. And the girl was upset and, and didn't know, but in fact, two weeks later, was diagnosed. Oh, wow. And so <laughs> after that, people at school kind of tended to leave Anita alone. Yeah. And, and, and she realized she had a gift. Uh, but she was uh, religious and uh, knew it was a gift from God and so had to, you know, deal with it appropriately. And we we had incidents where she met strangers on the street who would then consult with her for 10, 15 minutes. And she believed these were angels and were giving her direction in life. And uh, we encountered an imp and Ooh. sort of otherworldly being. And that kind of shook me up, but to her it was old hat. So we had these kind of, I don't know how you would describe them, but uh, events which, mm -hmm. as I stated in the book, if it just happened once, it would, I'd just write it off as kind of interesting or strange or coincidental. But 
when it kept recurring, I I felt that there was something more beyond the veil. Yeah, sure. When uh, Anita had these encounters with strangers that she would would consult with or would consult with her, what she later said that they she felt they were angels. Were you with her at any of those times? Yeah, but I was not participating, um, so I would observe her. Uh, like one time we went to the grocery store, and I was waiting in the car in the parking lot and just kind of saw her talking. It was like this woman looked like a homeless woman in rags, and they talked for probably 15, 20 minutes. And, uh, and, but with the interaction with the imp, I was a direct participant in that. Well, let me ask you a follow-up on the angel encounter first. Um, did did Anita come away from that? Like you said you were out in the car in that particular instance. Did she come back and say to you at that time, I just had a conversation with an angel? Or is this something that came, became um, realized to you later? Well, I, I kind of had to pull it out of her. I, uh-huh. I said, you know that person? She said no. And I said, well, what would you talk about? And then she described she was having some issues dealing with her family and 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 and, and later uh, I came and I think she she did call them angels later on and tell us about the imp encounter well we we were we had to go see our insurance broker and it was a Saturday morning so we drove uh, he had the office in one of these kind of older um office uh, office parks, and uh, he was the only business open that day. And when we pulled up, there was a car, another car, um, uh, not his car, but uh, another car with this young girl, probably maybe six years old, sitting in the passenger seat and no adults around. And she had uh, carrot hair and jagged teeth and resembled really an old soul. Mm. And she began to engage us in conversation, but uh, put a need on the spot, and it got, got a little weird. So I was kind of <laughs> ushering Anita away and just whispering to her, and the imp, of course, can hear everything, and it's kind of replying to me. And um, so I took her into the broker's office, and I asked the broker who, who, you know, who else was he seeing? And he said, well, there's nobody, nobody else out there. So he went out and looked, and the the imp was gone. And oh, wow. I kind of ran down the street and looked around, and <laughs> and so. So when, 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 as it was happening, you recognized it as a strange encounter, but you didn't yeah, recognize yeah. it as a, as a what may be considered a supernatural encounter at the time until you until it disappeared well <clears throat> as upon the first encounter i never met anybody that uh, you know a young child that effectively looked yeah and spoke and acted as an adult uh, not not just like a child actor but yeah uh, so I already there was something yeah, you knew. Uh, going on. You knew. Um, and then when she disappeared, kind of that kind of confirmed conf- them. Yeah. So what do you think? Th- what do you think that imp was after? Uh, what What do you think the intention well, was? Anita thought the, and imps they're they're not like really malevolent spirits. They're more uh, Anita. They're mischievous. They're mischievous. As an instigator. Yeah, mischievous. Yeah, mischievous and. And Anita cautioned me that if we were really operating from the dark side, you know, I'd really know it. <laughs> and, yeah. and so I just kind of let it go with that. And, and, and Yeah, but it's not, not the type of encounter a lot of people have. You know, it's very rare, obviously. So I'm curious, do you think it was because of Anita's sensitivities that this imp approached you? Uh, yeah, that's that's a big part of it. Yeah. I don't know if... If these things are happening all the time, but most people aren't uh, attuned right. or in touch, right. or if she had singled Anita out because she knew Anita had the perception yeah. to understand who she was. I think that's so. one of the things that I've learned with having so many conversations on this program with people who have had experiences that you know, a lot of people 
are just, they have blinders on, and when they have those encounters or those experiences, they just completely don't recognize them. Um, so they may be more common than we let on or than we're aware of because of that. Uh, I believe that's the case. Yeah. So was, um, you know, as you, as you, again, look back on Anita's sensitivities, her awareness, and her beliefs, this was all based in her uh, religious spirituality, right? Yeah, and it, it was hard for me to process at first because uh, religiously, I grew up in a Catholic household. I was an altar boy uh, as a child, and then I went to a Jesuit high school, which was the best education I had in my life. Yeah. I went far more than I did in college or later in life intellectually. Uh, but uh, after high school, I kind of fell away. So by the time Anita and I met, I wasn't practicing and then, you know, still had a belief in God or higher power, but it didn't really affect my life at all. Uh, Anita grew up in the rural south from uh, in a... The mother was Pentecostal and very religious, and her dad was less religious but very morally upright. And Anita didn't didn't go to the church, but she read the Bible every night and wrote her own exegesis and kind of walked the walk and practiced what she preached. And she didn't proselytize, uh, but. You know, she, people knew that she would always have friends coming over seeking advice and counsel, uh, that they knew she operated from a higher level. So uh, once we were together, I got to participate in this world, and it started to open my eyes. But at the same time, I was immersed in work yeah. and all the distractions and temptations that go with that. Yeah. So as as you're living your life, you're going along here, uh, you actually have an opportunity to go into what I read as a, like a psychic gallery reading or a medium's gallery reading with a bunch of people. Um, and you you ask Anita to go and she's hesitant, right? I mean, th- this is the beginning of 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 uh, your introduction with Mary Jo, right? Yeah, uh, this is now about five, six years later, it's in the later 90s, and we're in, living in Los Angeles at the time. And <clears throat> I don't know what made me go, because, again, even up till that time, I had no contacts with psychics or any sort of paranormal experiences other than what I was experiencing with Anita. Right. But I saw that there was a psychic who was having an introductory sort of seminar, and it was at the Hollywood Holiday Inn, of all places, and something made me want to go, and so I asked Anita, and we had never even discussed psychics, and I assumed it would be of high interest to her, but uh, on the contrary, uh, because of her religious beliefs and biblical readings, where psychics are not dealt with positively. She was extremely reluctant. Uh, And finally, I kind of cajoled her, and she went with me, and we went, and that's when we met Mary Jo. And you were in that session, uh, and I think that you went into it thinking, this is going to be entertaining. Uh, You know, these people are all uh, entertainers, not necessarily serious spiritualists. And things started to happen in this particular session that changed your mind. Yeah, I didn't really know what to expect. And because, again, it was kind of contrary to my outlook to want to go at all. <laughs> but uh, I thought it may be someone who would be fairly adept, but just ask kind of general questions and do a cold read and or whatever. And it was almost like watching stage magic, trying to see how they did it. Right. That was probably my state of mind. And so we went there, and there's maybe 30 people in the room, and 
this one a small conference room, and Mary Jo comes out, and she looks like a suburban housewife, which she was, and she sits on a stool and is very pleasant and says, I'll just, when I go in trance, I'll go down the row, down the, the row and uh, describe to each person something that may be troubling them or uppermost on their mind. And my suggestions for how to respond to it. So it wasn't about telling fortunes or making predictions. It was dealing with uh, human suffering. And so she went into trance, and now she sounds like I call it a, a disembodied Irish brogue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, yeah, and now I'm kind of like elbowing Anita, and she's just rolling her eyes. And so Mary Jo talks to the first person, a guy in the front row, and she reveals something of such with such clarity, a personal secret. And you could tell when the guy heard it, he was like visibly shaken. And now everybody's kind of getting a little nervous and edgy because this isn't what they expected. Right. And she went down the road, and, you know, by the fourth person, everybody just stunned silence. You know, and I'm wondering if she if she got 29 other people with shills yeah. <laughs> or what's going on. And when she got to us, well, she got to Anita first, and she talked to her about her brother who had drowned many years ago, who they were very close with, and gave details of that relationship things I didn't even know. And Anita's just like speechless. And so now I'm saying, well, she's going to get to me and she's going to tell everybody what a bad person I am. And uh, and she took it easy. I mean, I I had a surgery coming up and she just, you know, reassured me with regard to that. And she kept going. And so when, when we walked out, I mean, everybody's quite totally quiet and we get to the parking garage, and the first person she talked to, we see the guy get in his car, and he backs it up into one of the concrete columns and then just takes off. He was that that shaken. Wow. So uh, that, that was probably the moment when I thought, I don't know what she just did or how she did it, or it doesn't really matter what you call it. There, there is something there there's something there yeah you were impressed by this but you still thought maybe there was some trickering involved didn't you start researching paranormal topics paranormal you know showmanship if you will trickery ways that these people might be able to fool uh folks in the audience well right right afterwards for probably the next six months i didn't even uh, think about it because I was so busy at work. It's it's kind of like this life where <laughs> you go and, and you know negotiating these large deals with you know people whose names you see in the paper, and it just required so much concentration and energy that I didn't have the time to even devote to this. And then my circumstances changed, and I had some free time, so I began to you know, study the lives of of psychics, and I subscribed to Skeptic Magazine and uh, just learned about, more about stage magic, did everything I could to debunk the premise. And it, I came away from that. And, and my, my way of dealing with life in most cases, no matter if it was business or uh, other pursuits, was to just put what I call skin in the game. Right. If it was in business to risk time and money and reputation and take risks and do it and find out for myself. So that that's what I did in studying about psychics. And uh, Mary Jo then, this was towards the end of the year, she had a retreat in, uh, in the Florida Panhandle on, by the beach and so Anita and I went to that, and we got to know her a bit more. And Anita found that she was a good Christian woman and didn't operate from the dark side and still was kind of unsure how she was going to 
integrate this information into her religious beliefs. Uh, but we got to talk to her, and uh, and I came away after that saying this: she has something of value, <laughs> perhaps of great value to communicate. And I determined at that time that probably most people who label themselves as psychics or mediums or whatever expression you want to use probably weren't that highly skilled or. Right. In some cases, probably fraudulent, mm-hmm. uh, but that there was probably a tiny minority of people who were truly gifted and that highly skilled and operated from the right side, so to speak, and could really help me with my life. And that's when I became a believer. Now, did when you went to this retreat that uh, Mary Jo was having, you and Anita, uh, the retreat was in Florida. Were you still living in California at the time? Yeah, we were. We were still in L.A. Mm-hmm. And Mary Jo never came back. That was the only appearance she ever did in, I think, California. She just found the vibe in L.A. You know, contrary to right, you know. So, but you the, made you made the effort to travel across the country to learn more about this psychic medium. Oh yeah, yeah. Fortunately, I've I had the resources and time at the time, and th- that's what I try to do is to really find out in every aspect because this gets down to the larger question of what one believes to be true. Yeah. Uh, from the top down, and most people just they're so busy with their lives and raising families and with their work that they don't have the time to really investigate things thoroughly, and so they make decisions just based on what they hear or people who they agree with what what they say uh, but I, I I try to put all of that to the side and make up my own mind from my direct experience. I, I want to remind folks, we're talking with Martin Sawa tonight. He is the author of uh, his memoirs, actually, and the book is called The Other Side of Success. And the part of the book that we're talking about is just a very small part. Martin's story is varied and uh, diverse. There are a lot of parts in this book that don't have to do with the supernatural or the paranormal. We're focusing on those paranormal parts tonight, but the the, the, the entire book is really about Martin's life journey, and it's quite fascinating. Um, Martin, you got to know Mary Jo on this retreat. Tell us a little bit about who she was and where her influences came from. Uh, she grew up in uh, Tennessee, and like other of who I would consider are highly skilled intuitives who I've either met or have, you know, researched, uh, usually discovered this gift at a very young age. Uh, and they would usually be, uh, the gift would be suppressed by their parents or guardians. And in the case of, like, when Anita had, you know, similar gift, you know, Put it, put it aside because it could cause cause problems. So that's what Mary Jo did. But she began to read about uh, Edgar Casey, who was born uh, I don't know, probably 150 miles away in in Kentucky. And I'm sure most of your listeners have heard the name. Oh, of he, course, yeah, he's we've probably talked, talked America's about... foremost seer or psychic. Yeah, or, yeah, we whatever yeah. whatever you want to call we... it. And she, she really identified with him because he was also, he read the Bible. He read the whole Bible every year and taught Sunday school. So that kind of gelled with her, but she still suppressed the gift until, I think, in her early 20s. And again, that's not uncommon. Um, just felt that this was her calling. And that's when she began to, you know, do readings and whatnot. As you started to understand what this all meant, what a medium was, and how how they act, someone like Mary Jo actually did act as a conduit to the other side. In the book, you describe a, a, a medium like that as a radio, which I found to be a great description and a great perspective. Uh, tell us 
how you make that comparison, because I think it's quite insightful. Uh, Mary Jo's, she had what she called her guides, and these are spiritual beings and who would provide the advice that she in turn would provide uh, to, her, to her clients or her listeners. And the, that's why I sort of pictured her as a radio. Uh, the message or the content uh, comes from another source. But she is the medium through which it passes with the intermediary. And like a radio, sometimes the reception is very clear. At other times, it's very spotty. And her gift is the ability to translate from the language of the guides, which appears to her as images or numbers or symbols or letters in in her mind's eye. And then to take that in fashion and try to interpret what that means and communicate it to me in English that I understand. And I think at least some of the other again, highly skilled psychics probably operate in, in much the same way. And they're not 100% accurate and uh, not probably not close to that. But that's like in any in any skill set that deals with the gray areas. So like uh, I mentioned in my book, the, the top traders who trade stocks or commodities, other markets, are only right slightly more than half the time. So it's that, that comes kind of with that territory. But when they're right, they're really right. So, uh, yeah, I likened her to a radio and – uh, our sessions again were in. A, I didn't ask her what was going to happen to me or yeah. predict the future or anything, but to deal with life events and people who have passed, and sometimes people who are living, and how I can better deal with them and live my life in a better way. About halfway through the book, you come across chapter thirteen. The title of that chapter is "No Last Words," and this is a very important moment in your life and a very tragic night of your life. Tell us what happens and what you describe in chapter chapter 13. Anita and I, we were getting ready to go out for dinner with some friends, and we were running late, and she was in the bathroom you know, putting on her makeup and getting dressed, and I was in my office study, and I called out to her that, you know, we better better get going, and then she didn't answer. I called out a few more times and then went. uh, She was in the master bathroom and called to her and still no answer. So I I tried to open the door, but it wouldn't open. There was something blocking it. And then I kept pushing and pushing, and finally I pushed it open, and she was just lying naked on the floor. And... There's nothing that prepares you for a moment like that. Right. There's just nothing that prepares you. And so I, I pulled her out into the bedroom and tried to revive her and called 911. And I didn't know at all what was happening. And then the medics came and they brought the paddles out and did their best. But she was she was gone. And then two hours later, the coroner came and wheeled her out the doors. So there I was. I mean, first of all, that's that's an experience that that no one, as you said, is ever prepared for it, and no one wishes it on anyone because it's just horrific. Um, and I'm and I'm sorry, my condolences, obviously, because that's something that that obviously, regardless of how long ago it happens, it lives with you forever. But at a point, Martin, you you started to draw some strength from your relationship with Mary Jo. When did that start to happen for you after your loss of Anita? Well, immediately afterwards, um, it took a week for the memorial service and burial. Uh, So people who dealt with the death of a loved one uh, know you're kind of just busy trying to 
manage that. And yeah. then after that's finished, then you're home alone. Right. And uh, it got pretty bad, and I had suicidal thoughts. And fortunately, my daughter, who I was very close with, uh, at the time she was in her early 20s, she would come visit and call every night. And I think she got me over the roughest part just to at least pause and figure out what I was going to do. I had called my partner in work and just told him I wouldn't be coming in for a while. And uh, I had a good partner because he kind of carried the load for quite some time. And then I I waited for the coroner's report, uh, and it turned out that uh, Anita had uh, an enlarged heart, what they call hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And she never knew what hit her. She just literally dropped dead. And and as I said in the book, at that point, I knew how she died, but I didn't know why. So that's when I called Mary Jo. And she uh, comforted me and told me what had happened to Anita and that she was fine and she was on the other side. Uh, and then she told me that now I needed to sort of get myself together on the earth plane. And then I would know when it was time to talk again, that's when I should call her back. So that, that gave me some comfort, but it took me some time before I dealt with what had just happened. And uh, the grief, and then I, I just got absorbed in studying death and other things. And to to Mary Jo's credit, one of the things that appealed to me from the beginning when I first met her was she didn't try to push her work. Yeah, even when we did sessions, she only recommended maybe two a year, uh, just so I wouldn't use it as a crutch. And and so. Again, now she told me to get back on my feet. And then we had uh, another call, and this was a couple months later, and then that's when I really connected, reconnected with Anita. Before you and get she in... moderated our conversation. Yeah, before and, you get into uh, that. That's when I determined that uh, love and a relationship can survive physical death. Before you get into too much detail on that second call, was it the first a call you had with Mary Jo that she mentioned the rings and yeah, the the rings. Yeah. But I didn't know what she had meant at the time. And then I, uh, I looked and you know, I read the core, the autopsy report and the police report and uh, they didn't mention any jewelry and Anita always wore, you know, multiple rings on her fingers and, you know, gold chains and other things. So, but never, I just let that go. And it wasn't until later that, you know, I realized that. And the um, came up in, in the second call. And in, in the second call, you you actually, using uh, Mary Jo as, as an intermediary, uh, you actually had conversation with Anita, right? Yeah, it's the way... The way this works, and again, I don't know for your listeners, the ones that have uh, dealt with uh, psychics, uh, but I, I know there are some other ones that kind of works in the same way. Uh, they like like the radio. <laughs> they they're getting different messages, and it's not like you say, "Gee, I want to go talk to my mom" or something. Uh, frequently, the more you want to talk to someone who has passed, it's almost like it's the less likely they're going to show up. Right. There's like other spirits, you people from your past, loved ones, but even sometimes people who you don't even, not sure who they are, who kind of are vying to talk. <laughs> and, and so it, Mary, Mary Jo has no control, and whoever talks the loudest to the fact we shows up first. Uh, that's what she goes with until uh, that that message or communication has kind of exhausted itself. 
and then she waits for for the next one. But in Anita's case, um, she effectively pushed everybody to the side. <laughs> and this came up in a future call with a different psychic I have, but um, she described what life was like for her and uh, gave me assurances that our love wouldn't die. And the, and the main thing about each each of these sessions, uh, as it was the first time we met Mary Jo, is that she'll reveal something of such uh, of a, such a secret nature that no one else could possibly know, and, and that's kind of the the proof or the signal. Uh, that you're dealing with someone who is, is truly that skilled. Didn't Mary Jo uh, describe Anita as being a sunflower, open and bright where she was now? Yeah. And Anita was happy in her new life, but again, it was her job was, I was kind of a project on, on the earth plane, you know, to straighten me up morally and ethically. And so she was doing that in in the next life, um, and she had the choice. Mary Jo said, and this was in her first call, uh, to to kind of on the carousel of life to grab the brass ring and transition, or to come back. And she made the decision to transition because she. She always lived in this, more in the spiritual plane and felt like, you know, the physical body and all the problems of this earth, you know, were just kind of uh, dragging her down. And at first you felt a little put off by that, didn't you? Well, yeah, because uh, she, she was somewhat finished, but not totally finished. But then I said, oh, that's kind of selfish to me. And it's it's her life and she's doing great work. And uh, I got over it. Tell me about the rose petal, because uh, Mary Jo told you about the rose petal. Yeah, well, well, that was the, you know, kind of the sign in in the second call. And Anita was always kind of trying to educate me on the Bible and explaining different verses and so Mary Jo said she left your rose petal in the Bible, and I hadn't touched her Bible since mm-hmm. she passed. And, you know, sure enough, there there it was, and along with notes in the margins to me, <laughs> I guess anticipating her, her transition yeah. on how it would apply to my life and behavior and so forth so i don't want to make any assumptions uh were those was the rose petal and the the notes to you in the bible were they something that uh, anita did prior to her passing or do you think that was done after she passed yeah no it was i don't know when okay but yeah it was done i don't know if she i i don't know if she, she really had any foreknowledge oh that was going to be my of, next question over over death because it happened so suddenly, and she never talked about it, so she may not even have known she had uh, the problem. So this was, uh, but this... it was things that were just put in place, and then later on achieved significance. Yeah. So this is something she just did as a matter of course. Yeah. And, yeah. And and then they were significant after the fact. Um, when you were having these sessions with Mary Jo, and you were you were connecting to Anita through Mary Jo. Did you feel Anita's presence uh, almost in a physical way? No, not on the calls. Uh, I was just so, and and I'm always nervous because you don't know what's going to happen. Sure. It may turn out well, but it may not. Or she may not show up or who knows what. And I, I try to compose questions and or, you know, but you really can't guide the conversation. So, so I was didn't even think about that. But uh, later on, I had an experience, and it wasn't through Mary Jo, but where where 
what you described uh, truly happened. You were uh, obviously quite struck by the sessions you had with Mary Jo, and you got you got some significant uh, corroboration that uh, Mary Jo was in fact communicating to Anita based on some of the things she said. But you still decided you wanted to see if you could get similar similar results with another medium. Why did you decide to do that, and what were the results that you got? Well, well, this was year, years after her passing. Uh, and it, I guess it's still just, uh, you, again, uh, my life had changed. I wasn't living in this world with Anita, where I was exposed to what I call the world of the unseen, uh, which kind of includes everything outside the sort of physically or scientifically verifiable world. And I was back at, at work. I was doing better in terms of my personal development, but uh, and again, when you're not in the world, you be, you become more worldly. And and uh, I just said, well, what if this whole thing was just my imagination? <laughs> and I'm telling myself what I want to hear. And Mary Jo, while she's well-meaning. Um, Maybe just on a subconscious level, it's kind of guiding me. Who knows? So I, I tried to think of a way of proving it out more, like um, uh, a peer-reviewed experiment. Sure. And so I thought I would find another psychic and just to see what, what would happen. And I researched and talked to a few and vetted and found one who I by reputation, I, I thought it would be pretty skilled. And so we set up that call, and again, I'm nervous because I don't know what I'm going to hear and why am I even doing this. And and it was when it started, um, it was like we had never left off. Anita, again, pushed everybody else out of the way, and we just kind of almost resumed our last conversation through this radio. And at that point, I said, this is, uh, you know, I don't care what anybody else thinks or believes. This is is part of reality. And After (laughs) after these experiences, Martin, what, did anything change of your view of death or what happens to us after we leave this physical world? Yeah, my... I was one of those people that wasn't like a hardened uh, atheist or non-believer or hardened skeptic. I was always open to evidence, but again, just never thought about these kind of things that much. So by that time, I had started to regain my faith, and that's a whole other story. And so it kind of dovetailed with my formulating a worldview that um, is is predicated on certain key beliefs. And I was just rereading today the life of uh, Martin Gardner. I don't know if the name means anything to your listeners. But he's he, he was considered the dean of skeptics. He was a polymath. Uh, taught science, who was an expert in literature, and really created the movement, the, the science skeptical movement. But towards the end of his life, after he wrote an autobiography, he revealed that he believed in a personal God, uh, he believed in prayer, and he believed in an afterlife. And I found that kind of amazing. And that rubbed some of his acolytes the wrong way. But here, here's someone who spent literally his entire life, and he lived into his 90s, trying to debunk what I would call the world of the unseen and, you know, uh, left us with those beliefs. And that's why I say it's key as to what one believes to be true. If you believe life starts at zero and ends at zero, then you're going to live your life in a certain way. But if you don't, then 
you're going to live it not just in in the immediate reality, but in the world to come. And it's preparing for that transition. And you're going to live your life in, in a very different way. I, I think that's about as best as I can express it. You also write, and I think I've got the phrase uh, as a quote here, you write uh, that uh, something about a programmer external to the system to give it life. Um, you're talking about, uh, are you talking about God? Yeah, I'm talking, in however you define, want to define God, but for simplicity, uh, a, a greater power for the good is the way I would put it to start with. And there's, you know, the skeptics and many, many of the the skeptics are the ones that gain attention on the news feed. Yeah. Are also pretty strident atheists who anti-theists would be a better way to put it. And a lot of the scientific community is uh, also uh, atheistic. Not not making a judgment one way or the other, but just as a fact. So I think preoccupation with the natural world and experiments and measurements that can be done by that, um, and believing that that's the entirety of reality is, you know, that's their decision. But it doesn't fit with my experiential view of how life works, and uh, if there isn't, uh, to put it in computer language, somebody to write the code, uh, then you wouldn't have life as we know it. It would just be like uh, an automaton, just running and running and running. So uh, all of this research and experience and everything just solidified my my worldview as to what I believe to be true. One of the things that Mary Jo says in one of your sessions with her is that Anita will, I guess the quote is, uh, when your time comes, she will be there to walk you over. How did that make you feel when you heard that? Well, I, I kind of lost my breath. Yeah. Uh, because it was not just walking over, but it was like, it will feel like it happened just a second after she passed. And so you get in the whole area of, you know, what time means in the in the world of the unseen. But do you still have sessions with Mary Jo now? No, I. Uh, she she went on. She still does private session, but she's been doing more group work. Her son is a psychologist, and they do you know, more conventional workshops together. And she's uh, still, still is, is active, but more, more so in group sessions and in the process of, you know, healing and overcoming suffering. Some people... So, uh, I, we still are in touch. She read the book, <laughs> liked it, but every once in a while we'll do a call, but not that frequently. Some people feel that over time when they do this enough with a with, with a Mary Jo that's in their lives, they start to be able to recognize the communication and the signs themselves, and they can actually practice that without an intermediary, without a Mary Jo, without a medium. Uh, do you feel like you've done that? Are you able to communicate with Anita without the help of Mary Jo? Not, not in the same way. Uh, I, I think, I, I think people have certain levels of innate skill and potential, but, but clearly, and that was the whole reason why I went further. Uh, there's just a handful of people that are truly skilled, and I, I wanted to get information at that level, rather than kind of struggle to develop the talent, if in fact I had a talent in myself. Mm. Uh, we are getting close to being out of time here. I want to ask you about a couple other parts of your life experience that you talk about in the book briefly. Uh, one of the things you mentioned in the beginning of our conversation, Martin, is that your parents were immigrants from, from Ukraine. They lived in a very, very 
tumultuous time in Europe. Obviously, World War II, they lived under Hitler. They lived under Stalin. Um, and one of the things you talk about learning from them is the lessons of socialism. Given what we're going through in this country right now and the, the discussions that we're having as a nation, what are your thoughts on the lessons of socialism? I, I I have to honestly say I never thought in my lifetime I'd live to see what I'm seeing now. Yeah. And the, the, one of the worst features, it's it's very difficult to even have a conversation. Uh, a good friend of mine who uh, was offered one of the praise quotes in the book, he uh, said that, and he deals in, in the political world in the Beltway, to to have a conversation, you need two things. One, some agreement on what's factually true. And two, a mutual respect. And that is so hard to find. It's whatever position people have, it's I'm I'm right and you're evil. So (laughs) it's hard to have a conversation particularly when there's no common ground. My my parents lived in Ukraine uh, during the years preceding and during World War II. And this the, the area between Berlin and Moscow uh, was the scene of the greatest murder of civilians in human history. That's right. By Hitler and Stalin, Yep. primarily. It doesn't get any worse than that. <laughs> That's right. When I look at what people regard as harsh today, it just—I just marvel at human gullibility. So, again, I wouldn't believe that in you know in this in the world that we live in, in the country we live in, yeah. that this would be happening. But it is, and that's. We'll see how it unfolds. Well, you make a really, really important point there. In many ways, um, many generations in this country just haven't really known any kind of significant hardship. And uh, they don't have that perspective to help guide them and make them appreciate what they do have. And that's a lot of the basis from where much of this comes from, in my estimation. Um, And and a lot of the rhetoric is, is straight out of the... The Soviet playbook. Oh, it Almost sure word is. For word. It sure is. It's amazing. It is absolutely amazing. I happen to do another program as well that is more political in nature, and we talk about this significantly, and that's why I was interested in your perspective. Another thing that, that you talk about in the book, obviously we just went through another unprecedented uh, situation, time, a series of events in this country with the, with the uh, pandemic and then the lockdowns, which have changed everything. Um, but you talk about it from a real estate perspective as well, what kind of changes do you see maybe immediately and then, you know, as time ticks on here a little bit as a result of uh, of the lockdowns and the pandemic? The, my, my specialty was commercial real estate, uh, which is everything sort of other than residential owned real estate. Um, and in that world, it's, it was already going through major changes and before the COVID hit. Yeah. And I think COVID accelerated changes that were already happening and just speeded them up. Uh, but there were, there have been winners and losers depending on the type of property. Uh, in Industrial properties, because of the logistics and the demand, uh, logistical demand, um, they improved during COVID, as did life sciences and health-related. Uh, others like retail, which were bricks-and-mortar retail, which were already on a downward spiral, uh, just accelerated that. And the office building is the one where no one is quite sure what's going to happen. Um, certainly the, the work from home is going to take a toll and uh, other factors already in place, uh, but it may change kind of the whole landscape <laughs> of what an office building is and its function in the coming years. So 
Yeah, I am interesting to see. I am a bit of an investor myself. And uh, one of the things that I said prior to the pandemic is that, you know, malls and commercial real estate, retail commercial real estate has a real uphill climb in any and you know, in any force, any future that we can predict at this point, uh, and then you know, post COVID, you look at it and it's even grimmer for those particular types of property. I can't imagine, you know, I, I owned a bunch of radio stations for a long time, and my revenue source was local retailers as advertisers, and the internet started putting them out of business a long time ago, and this just accelerated it, you know, at warp speed basically. So. That's got to be a tough market. As we go back well, to that, they had insult to injury. Amazon is buying some of these old malls, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> and converting them to distribution centers. So uh-huh. If that's not death and rebirth, <laughs> <laughs> Martin. Uh, again, your your story is amazing. A lot of uh, a lot of amazing life experiences in. The, the paranormal part of it is particularly of interest to our, our audience here because that's what we talk about a lot on here. But what do you want people to walk away f- with after they've read your book, your story? Well, I, I hope they enjoy it. Uh, my my First, my goal was to to inform, move, and entertain. And if they can relate to the characters and feel some of what I felt, then I feel I've done my job uh, on kind of a secondary level uh, I'd like to just provoke in your listeners the the questions the big questions life questions we discussed tonight particularly what you believe to be true and when I mentor with people uh, whether business or life coaching that's the first question I ask because from that follows everything else. If you act contrary to your beliefs, or you're, you're in a job you don't like, or, you, or you're in a situation you don't understand, or you don't know what you believe, so you have no direction. So what do you believe to be true from the top down? And today, when you turn on the gadget or the TV, and most of what you see and hear is, fake or not true. <laughs> uh, yeah. I guess the best way to describe it is uh, Ernest Hemingway gave advice to writers. He said the most essential gift for a good writer is to have a built-in shockproof shit detector. And <laughs> maybe with that, I'll, <laughs> I'll close it. Well, I've got one more question for you, and then we can let you go. But... Uh... You know, there are people that that go that are experiencing grief all of the time, and some of them may be considering reaching out to someone like a Mary Jo. What is your advice to folks who might be experiencing some grief and might be in search of some help uh, from 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 their Mary Jo or from a person like Mary Jo? Be be very careful. Uh, but when when you're in a grief state, uh, you're just emotionally open and less, less protective of yourself. And so you need to be very cautious because, again, I believe there are a lot of people who will try to take advantage of the situation. And there is no one means of vetting a psychic. But I would recommend they, they talk to several and then not make any decision, like Mary Jo basically forced me to wait until they get past the initial grief state, and then they're more of, in more of a mindset to kind of objectively absorb the advice that a, a skilled intuitive can give them. Final question, where can people find the book? It's called The Other Side of Success. Where do people pick it up? The easiest is to go straight to my website, martinsawa.com, M-A-R-T-I-N, SAWA.com, and there you can find it available online through Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other booksellers, as well as links to social media. And I'd love it if, uh, if they have any questions or read the book and have comments just via the website to drop me a line. 
Well, thank you for being with us tonight, Martin, and thank you for sharing your story. It's very personal, and uh, your, your grief is uh, is obvious when you tell the story, and it's 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 a message of hope in a lot of ways, and we appreciate you sharing it with us. Well, thank you for having me on. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.